right now on Earwolf. Scam Goddess kicks off a brand new season of cons when Conan O'Brien joins Lacey to chat about the real-life Wolf of Wall Street. For more, follow at Earwolf on social media. Happy listening. Extra, extra, read all about it! Former school teacher turned investigative journalist shines a light on the violence against black Americans in the post-Civil War South. Born to shout the truth in America, physical and verbal threats couldn't shut Ida B. Wells up or stop her commitment to chronicling the experience of African Americans during a violent time in America's past. This is History the Sequel. Mina, did you start school at a dumb, dumb time? Did you go two days? Uh, no, I still have two more days after Labor Day. Well, why are some kids in school already? I don't know. Some people started like two weeks ago. I can't, I can't fathom that. In the that. same state. That makes no sense. I know. LAUSD just is out to get people. I was so excited to get your email because I was still reeling. Like once I left this place, I was so excited. I was like, I want to start my own podcast. Yes. I, I ranted about it for maybe two weeks to my dad. I was like, I'm going to do this. I don't have an idea, but I'm going to do it. Like I was very, very much into the whole podcasting business. Well, you're so good at it. You're so good at it. Well, that makes me okay. Well, I think it's very very much tied into who we're going to talk about today. I feel like you're dipping your toe into the media avenues that there are out there. This won't surprise you. They have a very big problem still with diversity. Really? I hadn't heard. Wow. I know this is something that you're very aware of. 16% of daily newspaper employees are racial minorities and 24% make up online outlets. Those that's, those are bad numbers. 16 or 60? Si- one six. Oh, wow. One. I heard 60 and I was like, okay. And oh, then you were like 16. Yeah, 16. It was my Southern accent. 60 yeah. and 16 sound exactly alike. We need diverse new systems all over the globe, especially right now telling the whole story. We need everybody's eyeballs and everybody's truth mouths all over everything. <laughs> truth mouths is my favorite word. I love that. I'm going to use that. You should use it. We have to have people telling stories, not only from their own perspective, but also other people interested in stories that are not their own. Yes, I agree. Continue. We need, we need this. We need it more than it. We need to have a healthy diverse stream of information so that we can all know what exactly is going on in our world. Mina, I know this is something that you absolutely are committed to. This is something that you talk about a lot. We've talked about a lot about diversity on TV. It doesn't seem like a lot maybe to somebody who's like, for some people, they're like, why is that a big problem if they've seen themselves represented? But for somebody who hasn't, it's just really something that you're acutely aware of all of the time. And it's it's so funny because it really just makes the difference. It's anytime you f- you you shouldn't feel like an outsider in your own country. For real, I yes, especially when you're surrounded by people you know have like minded sensibilities or come from the same culture, and yet you're still not seeing that on TV because you don't have the control to get in there. Mm-hmm. That's not. It's look. It is a two sided coin. Number one, we need to make sure that we're encouraging people to get into these fields and that they have avenues to get into these fields, into media fields, journalism, etc. And then also we need people at the top to recognize this is a problem and start doing something. Definitely. And you need people, you need representation both in front of the camera and behind it. You need to have the control to be able to make the casting decisions, make the decisions about who goes up. And then you also need the people and the talent to 
be available to be on screen. Absolutely. So I want to talk about a woman who exemplifies everything that we're talking about right now. I'm ready. (laughs) Ida B. Wells, who you know something about. I know a little bit. But you've heard of her. Yes. Okay. So we're going to learn all about her today. Every single thing about her today. She is a phenomenal person doing impossible things at a time when it was not allowed. She was born on July 16th. 1862 in a place called Holly Springs, Missouri. Okay. So Hollywood, but like with a twist. (laughs) Yeah. Off-brand Hollywood. Uh, Off-brand Hollywood, exactly. She was born less than one year before emancipation. This was a horrific time to be born into. Not that there aren't also (laughs) terrible times to be born into. This was one of them. Her mother was Lizzie Warrington, An enslaved person who then, by default, anyone she gave birth to was then also enslaved. And given that status, Lizzie, her mom, was stolen as labor and afterwards tried to locate the rest of her family after the Civil War and was unsuccessful. So not only was she in this servitude prison, she also was absolutely removed removed from from her family. She loves, yeah. That's horrific. It's heartbreaking to think about. Ida's father, James Wells, didn't have a better story. Well, lateral move, I guess. (laughs) He was the son of an enslaved woman named Peggy, who was impregnated, probably against her will, by James's father, who was a white man. Okay. When James was 18, his father brought him to Holly Springs to learn carpentry and worked under the status of, this was the status he was given, hired slave living in town. Oh, wow. I don't know if that was a special distinction given to people who oh, were mixed race. it's okay. You're race. special. You get to be a hired slave. Yeah. Oh, you are you have white blood? Just take a little tiny step out of the oh gosh, shitty pool. Isn't that awful? That's Isn't terrible. that awful? But despite, or maybe because of all of the things that these two, that Ida's parents had been to, they, they were very, very politically aware and understood the importance of education and instilled that in all that. of their children. They knew that was the way out, even if the way out was a long way off. They knew that by being able to read, write, have critical thinking skills and be politically aware of the stuff that was happening to them was going to be very important in the success of their children. And Ida grew up with this, but that influence was cut short in 1878 when Ida was 16 years old. Both of her parents and one of her brothers died of yellow fever. Do you know what yellow fever is? I do. Okay. It's a virus carried by mosquitoes. And do you know why it's called yellow fever? Uh, does it have racist origins? This is the one thing that doesn't. Okay. Okay. It gives you jaundice. Okay. So your skin and your and the whites of your eyes turn yellow. Oh, and that's how you know one of the symptoms of that you have it. Now, of course. It's like vaguely reminiscent of like some kind of zombie virus. Yes. Everything that you, Mary Shelley, all, all of these, these, these writers from uh, Dark Times of Medicine, mm-hmm. All vampires, everything, zombies, Frankenstein. Frankenstein, yeah. It's all based Came on illness. Real stuff. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Love that. <laughs> yeah. 
So at 16, she was tasked with raising her six siblings that were still alive. Were they all younger than her? They were. And the reason she did that is because they the state was threatening to put them in foster homes and she didn't want her family split up. So I'm 80% sure that might have something to do with the fact that her mother... Part of the story is that her mother was taken from her family and she probably felt some sort of like... Yeah, responsibility to keep everybody together. Which is also... Which is justified, but that's a lot of work to take on six as kids, a 16-year-old. Can you imagine raising children? I'm not 16 yet, but like... Are you two I, years away? I'm one year away. Okay. I'm 15 now. I don't even know that I I mean, could, same diff. Like, I mean, I'm struggling to keep up with all of my math homework. And they're like, oh, let's take care of six kids. Wow. Okay, so here's what she did. The ma- Okay, so that that's one facet of it. Then she said, I got to get a job. So she lied, said she was older, and then became a teacher. Wow. So she was teaching school, raising six of her siblings. She did have the help of her grandmother, Peggy, who I mentioned earlier, and then she was going to night school to continue her education. So she's just really doing the most. Like, like she's sleeping one second a day, I'd essentially. I see you, Ida B. Wells. <laughs> so she, unfortunately, her grandmother had a stroke and died. Just blow after blow for Ida. Yeah. And that's when she, she, she was um, 18, 17 wow. or 18. It okay. wasn't much longer. It mm-hmm. wasn't, wasn't much after her uh, parents died. She got an invitation from her Aunt Fanny to bring her two youngest sisters to Memphis. Because I guess they were the only ones who were actually needed, still needed care. Memphis is going to be a very important place for Ida. It's where she's going to solidify who she is as a person and, and, and build a career for herself. So in 1884, she's living in Memphis. She's teaching. She's learning. She's raising. She's not doing regular teenage stuff like... Mm-hmm. anything else relaxing she wasn't stomping down the stairs she's mad. not practicing self-care and doing korean beauty masks she's not she's okay. not doing masks that look like pandas make Got her face you. look like a panda she's not doing baby feet do you know wow. what that is no baby feet is like this cream that you put on your feet and you then you put a plastic bag over your feet and it sloughs all the skin off your feet <laughs> and it looks like basically a snake molting Oh, that is not a, mm, that is not a fun thing to imagine. Okay, she wasn't doing that. She wasn't doing that. She wasn't doing Manny. She wasn't doing Petty. She wasn't getting her brows uh, microbladed. Okay, yeah, she was. No, no threading for her. Mm-mm. Gotcha. No threading. No, no lip gloss. No, you know, leaving. Telling condition. me she didn't get to enjoy Fenty the Fenty line. Really? Wow, Ida B. Wells. <laughs> Just being like. Being selfish with her self care, okay, you know, it was not was not a thing that was happening. <laughs> yeah. Got you. So she, she's doing the exact opposite of all that. She was taking all the self care time and giving it to other people. Okay. She was offered while she was teaching. She was also writing on the side, kind of writing about in these like church newspapers and just writing slightly political things. And so she was offered an editorial position at this place called the Evening Star in Washington, D.C., and then another place called the Living Way Weekly Newspaper, all based on some articles that she had written. She wrote as Iola because she was a little bit frightened, perhaps, 
Putting protective. Her name out there. Yeah, I get that. Because she was writing about Jim Crow era policies and ripping into them. Just five years later, in 1889, she became the co-editor of the Free Speech and Headlight, a black-owned newspaper. So she bought into this newspaper, and she was was just—that was five years later. Two years after she got this co-editing position, she was fired from her teaching position for criticism that she had with the Memphis Board of Education and how they handled the appalling conditions of black schools. So they just, they, they didn't like what she had to say and they kicked her out? Fired her. Wow. Because she was complaining that about something. That must be the first time in history that's ever happened. <laughs> you better be careful talking about LAUSD. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I'm sorry, you guys. Don't you come fired. for me. So this was probably a blessing in disguise because now she devoted her time and her uh, career to journalism, something that she really wasn't trained in, but she was excellent at. Mm -hmm. Her passion and her activism was totally exploding at this time. And during this time, a couple of things happened that really like put, put her foot to the, put her feet to the fire when it came to making journalism her full-time passion. She was thrown off a first class train, even though she had a ticket. What do you think she did when that happened? Got back on. She sued. Oh. She flat out sued and won on the local level. But unfortunately, because the whole country was racist. She lost. Was. I use past tense. Probably doesn't deserve it. But she, it was overturned on the federal level. But Ida could not and would not shut up. Then something absolutely horrific happened. That had been happening in the U.S., but now is about to happen to her personal friend and someone whom she was the godmother of this person's son. Her friend Tom Moss was brutally lynched in Memphis, and so she started investigating white mob violence and the justifications that white people had for it. Here's what happened to Tom. He and two of his friends, Calvin and Will, started a grocery store in Memphis. Well, this store had business. And the business was seen as hurting the white grocery store down the road. So this started a straight up fucking feud started by the white grocery store owner. One night, Tom and his friends defended their store against an attack and shot some white vandals in the process. They were sent to jail. While they were in jail, a mob came to the the prison, dragged them out, and murdered them. And nothing happened. Nothing happened. was done about it. Nothing. Oh. And this was happening what? Like all the over the country. The prison guards just looked away? No, they were part of it. Oh. Everyone lovely. participated. <laughs> well, in their minds, these guys had shot white people. But totally ignoring all the harassment, all the shit that had happened before so then. Speaking of LAUSD, mm-hmm. something really important that I learned in the fifth grade uh, I don't know if any of these people had gone to the fifth grade, but they teach you all about context and how to include context in like the essays you're writing because it's generally pretty important. I don't think these people had a good lesson in context, you know? I, th- I think they really could have they used learned- a little bit of that. <laughs> if there were extra seats in LAUSD classes, these people should have been invited in <laughs> to learn a little something. So you can imagine it was probably pretty life-altering to know that your friend had died 
period, but then to have died under these kind of circumstances. Mm -hmm. And look, I don't, I think it's important to see pictures of lynchings because you need to see how horrific it is. And that's not something that was happening during this time. That's not something that people were being, that were talked about. People weren't seeing the pictures. They weren't, they did not know. Many places in the U.S. did not know what was happening in the South. And during this time, during the height of of mob lynchings, 5,000 people were murdered in public. Oftentimes, not just, and and oftentimes it wasn't fast. It was not a fast way to die. Mm -hmm. People were, I'm just going to talk about some of them because I think it's really important that we know. People were uh, beaten, hanged, dragged until their skin fell off. They, one gentleman was dipped into a fire over the course of several hours and then burned to death. This is, and this was all under the guise of some sort of criminal, some sort of trial, but without any context, as you say, without any justification, but they had justifications and their justifications were this. Black men were raping white women. Black men were terrorizing businesses. All of these accusations of crimes that absolutely were not happening. So Ida B. Wells decided she was going to start writing about this. And she was the first person to talk about this stuff on a national level and made people listen. She made people face what was going on in the South. For two months, she investigated everything that was happening in other parts of the South, oftentimes risking her own life to get the real story about what the fuck was going on. She found that in two-thirds of the murders, rape, which is a justification that white people had for doing this, was never even an issue that was brought up. And when it was brought up, it was often regarding consensual interracial relationships. I just... The... the What screws with my mind the most about like those kinds of rape allegations where it's just like you know everybody like has to read to kill a mockingbird in like eighth grade and the one thing that i think was meant to stick with you and has always stuck with me is the fact that um the i'm blanking on his name but the man who got put on trial for raping the woman she was the one who had originally in tried to initiate like I think her name was like Morella or something, trying to initiate like the relationship that they had. And, and he when, was a married he man. Even, yeah, when he didn't even want it. Um, and it just messes with me so much that there are all of these people who just like knew that they were complicit in killing somebody innocent and who just like um, the woman who or the the woman who originally said um, Emmett Till looked at her weirdly and then got him killed as, like, a child, it just completely messes with me. I don't know how you live with yourself People, after that. look, slavery as a legal form of stolen labor was illegal, was n- no longer. So white people were finding every fucking way to make sure that black people never felt equal, ever. Whether that means... But that's not even not feeling equal. That's like, that's not not affording you the same opportunities. That's just being like, I have power over your life and whether you get to keep it. Absolutely. And, but it is very much this thing in the South of know your place. And the minute people 
This still goes on to this fucking day. If you act too uppity, if you act too equal, if you talk back to a person in authority, get ready to have the fucking hammer come down on you. That is the thing. It's like always fucking know your place. And the minute you think you can own a grocery store, well, we're all going to show you that that ain't the fucking way. Now, that's what people, people, it's a class system. It's a race system. It's all this stuff. But at the end of the day, like you said, it's just fucking power. It's just making sure that someone doesn't fucking succeed because, and someone doesn't thrive and someone's not equal to you because you feel that if at any moment someone else is doing exactly as good as you are, something's being taken away from you. And that's just not the fucking case. That, that, uh, it's like, do you have any, yeah, go go ahead. Do you have any siblings? Yes, I have a sister. Okay, so when, is she like close in age to you? Mm-hmm, 14 months. I have a brother who is 18 months younger than me. And every time I had anything I wanted to play with when I was younger, or anytime he had anything he wanted to play with when I was younger, like the second one of us would have it, the other one immediately wants it because it feels like it's being taken from you. That's kind of innocent, like childish sibling rivalry. This is that, but like on a fucking like, like... Just but that's what it is. A whole nother level. There's this, there's a, there's a several psychologists who have broken down, like essentially the maturation of your emotional, your, your emotional capacity, right? So like some people never get out of that fucking phase mm-hmm. and then they become adults and then they're doing hateful things like this because it's the same thing. This is mine. You can't have it. Look, this is all. This is a Republican thing, too, right now of, like, not wanting migrants here because they think they're going to drain the system. They think you're going to take something away. I don't see it that way. I see people who are in dire straits who need our help. And the Republicans are just like, yeah, but what are they going to take from us? There's enough to go around. Also, it's a whole thing. Like, look, every construct that we have in the world is fucking made up. Money's a construct. Gender's a construct. (laughs) Class is a construct. It's all shit. We made we made the rules so we can break them and we can pull them apart and we can do it differently. No one's everyone's so scared. The piece of the pie isn't getting smaller. You can bake more pies. Bake more pies. That's exactly right. I mean, it is look, while we don't have lynchings in this country anymore, it's not like this kind of violence doesn't still happen. And it's not like the sentiment isn't there mm-hmm. or the, I mean, look, is has it been translated into the way that police handle the arrest of, of black Americans? Absolutely. It's yeah. just, it just, it's a shape shifting. It's just shifting. Hate, you yeah. know, unlike today where it feels like, oh my God, there's so much fucked up going wrong. It has always been like this it is just a matter that we're all talking about it finally and hopefully we can start doing something about it but ida b wells was ahead of the curve here trying to get people to talk about it no one was uh, i'm going to tell you some stuff that's going to be truly upsetting about the way that she was treated but i want to just talk about what some of the things that she reported on what she said so she published all of these findings in a newspaper in the memphis free speech in a headlight exposing that the real reason for lynchings were Black Economic Progress. And she printed a pamphlet like Southern Horrors, Lynch Law in All Its Phases, and then another one called The Red Record. And this she was 
sending out to anybody who would read it, especially people in the North who did not know what the fuck was going on down there because no one was talking about it. Newspapers weren't even covering that this was happening. This is before Instagram. Yeah. Can you just, let's just take one second and think of all of the steps that she had to go through. At this time, to not only like get the information, but then like print it, spread it, distribute on it. On what? So that a typewriter? Like you have to have ink? Like you have to have paper? Yeah. Then where's your printing press? How many it's copies? Amazing. How do you get the copies from Memphis to Chicago to New York? How do you do that? You can't fax it. <laughs> I don't even know. Like carrier pigeon? I don't even know how you do it. <laughs> how do you do it? I still don't understand how the New York Times can come to my house the day it is released. I don't, I mean, I understand that the LA Times probably prints it and they send a digital file, but it breaks my brain to think about that that happens. So I can't imagine it back then. I just want to take a moment, Mm -hmm. as much as my parents are always on me about like being on social media too much, can we just appreciate how much it is, like just widened all of our horizons, like we're broadened all of our horizons, just made us all so much more aware of things that are going on. Like I, I know people or like quote unquote know people on the internet from literal like other continents and that was like so not a thing 20 years ago well it it was but you it would took a long time okay okay pen pals but not like that you can literally find a hashtag it's just you could do it like liberal liberal teens (laughs) and then you could just find all the liberal teens in the whole world you know it's crazy amazing i love it mm. but the, the other side of that is that with great power comes great responsibility which is that it is important to log off. That's true. And have a mind break because we shouldn't have access to this much information all at once. It will create, I mean, look, I go through it too. I will go down research holes and I will find videos and I will watch video after video of stuff that is really disturbing and stuff I need to know about and I need to take a break. But too much of it all at once, of yes. course. And then I go through the whole thing of like, but people are going through this, so I should experience this because then I need to know what they feel. And like... But preserving your sanity, like, if you... I can't pres- help if I... Yeah. Yeah. And you're you're more effective as an activist and as a person trying to create change if you don't just, like, wear your mind down. Exactly. My self-care is turning off my phone. Yeah. And... And baby feet. And baby feet. <laughs> I'm so scared to do it. Okay, so seven presidents during the height of lynching, which was 1880 to 1930, tried to pass a federal law against lynching. None of them passed because of the power of the white Southerners in the Senate. They wouldn't even make it illegal. How... How can you stand behind your people doing that? It's one thing if it happens and it's illegal, but people kind of turn the other way. Like, but it's another thing if you are just outright condoning it. Outright condoning. That's what that is. Jeez. If you're not standing up against something, then you're you're co-signing on it. Yeah. That's that's how I personally feel about it. It was so dangerous for her to be doing this in Memphis. Her her newspaper was set on fire. She had death threats, 
verbal threats. It was a terrible place for her to be. So she moved to Chicago. I don't even, here's the thing when I think about Ida B. Wells, do I have that in me? I don't to know. risk my own life to make I don't know sure that, that the I'd truth be able to gets, do it. That's a special kind of person. That's that's just oh my gosh. It's it's overwhelming to think about, right? But it's just it's not even cuz it's I feel like for her she didn't even have time really to think about like do I want to do this? Do I want to go and she just it just was part of her. She had no choice. It drove her yeah. her own being drove her to do this. Exactly. She took it. It, it wasn't to, an optional fight for her to get into. Exactly. She took it to the nextest level that you could take it to. In 1883 and 1884, she went on a speaking tour to the UK to tell them what the fuck's going on in America and to get the British government to denounce the lynchings in America. And it worked. She got the whole world to open their eyes to what was happening over here. Not only that, she was hired for her first journalism assignment while she was there for a white-owned newspaper. She was the first black journalist to be to be hired by a white oh. newspaper. She got a lot of press and a lot of support while she was on this UK tour, but she also got a lot of hate. Here's something I want to read from the New York Times. This is a direct quote. They preferred to personally attack her rather than talk about the issues she was bringing up. They called her a, quote, slanderous and nasty, nasty-minded mulatress. That was what the New York wow. Times said about her. Was it an op-ed or just, it was just an article? I don't know. It, But either way, they published that. Yeah. And that's what they had to say. That's what they had to say about her. Like of all of all. All of the things you could, even of all of the negative things you could say, like, because there's so much to say about her and all of it should be positive. But of all of the negative things to say, you're going to go after, you're going to just like prove yourself as more racist by going after her, like with a weird, like racial term. You're just like, ugh. it's so, so racist I'm on just, so many levels. And the New York Times is doing that. That's the New York Times, okay? So the next year, she met her husband, Ferdinand Barnett, an attorney, civil rights activist, and journalist in Chicago. What do you think Ida changed her last name to when she married Ferdinand? Nothing. She just didn't change it. She hyphenated it. She, Which I think was like the most- Hyphenated names for the win. (laughs) (laughs) She was the most progressive thing you could do back then. Here's what's amazing about their relationship. This was unheard of in- all corners of the world at this at this time. He was an attorney, civil rights activist, and what he did in his personal life took a backseat to her career because her career was on fire. She was in demand. People wanted to hear what she had to say. And he would stay home and cook meals sometimes for the kids and she would be off t- doing these lectures and letting As people- she should be. It was pretty unheard of at that time. I think, and also- Kudos, kudos to her husband. Like Ferdinand, way to go. Yeah, come on, Ferdinand. We applaud you. <laughs> they had four kids together. She also helped raise his two kids from a previous marriage where his wife, he's actually was a widower. And um, she continued to just- this, you could not stop Ida B. Wells. She, let's talk about for one second, let's talk about the NAACP. 
So Frederick Douglass, who was a very big activist, basically the person you want to have giving you accolades if you're doing this kind of civil civil rights work. He was such a big supporter of Ida, not just intellectually, but also financially, would bankroll a lot of her speaking tours and thought that she should be next in line to be the leader of this movement. But there were men in the movement who thought that she was too radical. And she was. A lot of historians say that she that and and some of her living family members say that she didn't keep friends long. She had very high oh. standards for people, and if you didn't meet them, you 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 got kicked to the curb. And I respect that. Yeah, I mean, she was very serious. Very very intense about what she did. Well, she's covering things that people are dying, and so she is writing about them. I can't imagine the emotional toll it takes to do something like that, but also like I can't imagine it's easy to enjoy any parts of your life if you are constantly thinking about your work and how you're not. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's a fast- with, with something like that, it's just all consuming. All consuming. She helped to found the NAACP, but was basically written out of the narrative of the beginnings of it. And she said that W.E. Dubois, who was also one of the founders, intentionally left her off the founders list. So, I mean, sounds it rings true to me that that something yeah. like that would happen. There, even though you have a movement that for is, equality, there's. I did um, my final history essay on um, the role of Black women in the civil rights movement this last year, and the things I found were just like the way women were treated and the way they were just sidelined and dismissed. Um, this is super off topic, so I don't know. Like, and I'm so in for this. Okay. Yeah. Uh, one of the really interesting things that I found was there was a group of um, mostly students, college students, young people, uh, who were, I mean, still motivating around the civil rights movement. But the way they were structured, the hierarchy was a lot less defined and a lot more fluid. So women actually held much more equal roles. Uh, and it was just because they were young people that were trying to figure it out. And that just kind of gave me a lot of hope, you know? Well, felt, felt very inspirational. Ida was straight up like when the suffrage movement started, she straight up was calling out Susan B. Anthony, all the leaders saying, where's the black women? Mm-hmm. I love that. You think you're, you no, you're for the vote for rich white women. That's what you're for. And Women, w- people who called out intersectionality, like in historical movements, have my entire heart. Because that just... I love that. That makes me so happy. She was, I mean, honestly, I don't, I would never want to be, be an enemy of Ida B. Wells. I don't think you would survive the other side of that. I think she would read you to filth. She, unfortunately, because of how, I'm going to say the word passionate because I think that the characterization of her attitude and her passion was, unfortunately, because she was a woman, it has a negative connotation, and I don't see it that way. Like, maybe she was a straight-up bitch. Great. Great. She, she got stuff done. She got stuff done, and no man has ever—no salty-ass motherfucker who got shit done was ever—anyone was like, but he's not nice to have around at dinner parties. No one would care. Nobody. Nobody. Like, yeah. You don't have to be at dinner parties if you're bringing about equality. Thank you. You, you, get, you get an official pass. Thank you. So she was— she was falling out of favor because she was so radical and so angry. And that's 
as we said, how you get shit done. But also, just when people say that women are being radical and angry, like, there might be some truth to it. But my first instinct is always to be a little bit suspicious of that characterization. Because, like, just when, like, women showing any sign of passion is just immediately like, oh, she's too emotional. She can't be trusted. And I'm like, what are you talking about? There's people who would come into this room right now and be like, what the fuck are they screaming about? I know. What are those two angry women screaming about? (laughs) It's unfair. It's really unfair that our passion and our, and our deep, deep, deep ability to empathize with people who are marginalized and feel the thing that they're feeling and amplify that in a way to make th- the world better is villainized. Like, so we can all, we all feel very, I mean, honestly, when people, the characterizations of her as someone who was like a tough cookie, she was and could have been had I know allowed. plenty of people, I know plenty of men that are tough cookies and are doing nothing. They're just tough cookies and that's it. <laughs> And we're, not, reason. we're not harping on them for that. So she, even though she fell out of favor for more conservative activists in, in the civil rights movement of this time, who were quote unquote more palatable to white allies. Mm-hmm. That, I mean, that's really what it's, I mean, and look, I understand being, there's a political move that I'm not good at, which is, being dimming yourself down and trying to like appeal to my dad always calls them um imperfect allies and like I get that but I don't know that I'd ever be able to do that it's hard it's hard to not just be like no you need to straight up listen because I'm telling you what's going on instead of being like allow me to hold your hand and dip you gently into the pool of oppression so you can diplomatically phrase this for you take a tour into the into the like Hmm. Everyone needs to nut up, a phrase I hate, but I'm going to use it, and start listening to people who are angry, and we need to fix this stuff. I'm also, no one likes being angry. It's not like Ida B. Wells was like happy. This makes me really, this is really enjoyable for me, you know? I just like screaming at people. It wasn't, it's not like that, exactly. So she remained committed to causes until her death in 1930. I mean, name a thing that was going wrong in the world for black people. And she was on it. Prison inequality, wages, uh, feminism, black feminism. She basically started that. I love that. She was do. She was spinning so many goddamn plates trying to fix the world. (laughs) It's, it's, it's really a shame what happened to her. Well, okay. So here's what happened. So she, died in 1930 and it really wasn't until the 70s that she began to be celebrated again as she deserved to be in 2018 134 years after they called ida b wells a slanderous and nasty nasty minded mulatress mm-hmm. the new york times did an entire obituary for her that is so wonderful and so beautiful and absolutely it's an it's too an late. Yeah, but it, it's they're, an, they're trying. They're well. There's a woman running this obituary project that that they're doing, and it's let's give her the credit because she really got it off the ground. But in that paper, who did a lot of wrongs, 
there is there is a there is there are rights being done. And I do recommend you read that that obituary of her. It, it's um it's really really well done and and um and so it's a love letter to her and and as it should be. She was relentless in her pursuit of equality and racial fairness and built the tenets of investigative journalism that are still in use today. She was loud and radical, even when it scared her own organizations. And she created a avenue for women to be angry and get things done and was the patron saint of doing the right thing, basically. Let's all remember what Ida B. Wells did in the face of the impossible. She exposed the truth of the world, no matter how upsetting, to force America and the world to face the injustices being ignored in this country, something that we all need to be reminded still needs to be done today. She famously said, One had better die fighting against injustice than to die like a dog or a rat in a trap. Couldn't agree more. Okay, Mina, it's the part of the show where we walk you through some scenarios and we test out some potential responses that will smoothly slip in Ida B. Wells facts to educate your contemporaries. Are you back? Oh, sorry. Are you ready? Yes. (laughs) I was reading something else. (laughs) My brain stopped working. I'm ready. Let's go. Okay. Scenario one. Slip and slides are back. I don't know if you know what they are. Do you know what they are? I do. I got, I think, like uh, like a carpet burn. Oh, good. Yeah. That I need yeah. to keep that best memory. No, this is going to be very important. Oh, gotcha. You watch as your friends place a hose on a large wet piece of plastic and slide across the ground like greased up watermelons. <laughs> you realize there's no safety warnings on the slide, and a lot of your friends are jumping too high and landing really hard, knocking the breath out of their tiny lungs and passing out. Here's what you do. Hey, you guys, just like Ida B. Wells when the Chicago Times suggested the city adopt racial segregation in the 1900s, she not only wrote an opposition letter to the editor, but then also went down to his office and lobbied him and put so much pressure on the supporters of separate but equal schools, she shut the whole idea down. And so just like her, I would march down to the WAMO and demand they not only put warnings on their toys, but also pictures of the bad things that could happen for young kids who can't read yet. I mean, that was the longest sentence I've ever written. The longest sentence I've ever written. It is exactly what has to be done when you see a wrong in the world. You march right down there and you tell people, come on, whammo, you're doing it wrong. (laughs) Scenario two. You've been rabble rousing at school because of a recent adoption of a lunch item called potato triangles, which tastes like cardboard covered in salt. You're tired of eating unhealthy food and you stage a sit in during lunch. This lands you in detention. The detention teacher, I don't know if that's their actual title, (laughs) the detention teacher is disappointed that you're in there, Mina, and asks you why. Here's what you how you explain it. Miss Trundblad, why? (laughs) Did you know that after shedding light on lynchings in America, Ida B. Wells was placed on surveillance by the U.S. government during World War I, labeling her a dangerous race agitator? And that didn't stop her from reporting on racial inequality in this country? Just like detention is not going to stop me from fighting for fresh potatoes. That was brilliant and passionate, and I loved every second of it. Okay. Okay. Scenario three. This is actually a part two of the last question, okay? Okay. Potato triangles are now banned, but the credit is given to Trevor Sinclair, a white kid who joined the sit-in at the 11th hour. Here's what you say about this. 
Or you, this is what you do. Oh, this is what I do. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, first of all, can I just say, hey, yo, Trevor Sinclair, like, come on, man. <laughs> Not cool. <laughs> Second of all, I start a campaign to let everybody know I was the one who started this. And like Ida B. Wells, who's actually the first black activist to organize economic boycotts in America, I will let people know that the credit for the idea belongs to me because it's important that the accomplishments of women be known so that other women wishing to achieve something great have someone to look up to. Well put. Mina for thank president. Thank you. I wrote that all myself. Mina, thank you so much for joining us. This is the last episode of season one. I couldn't think of a better, more emphatic person to be doing it with me. Thank you. Especially I had so much fun. Ida B. Wells, who you now know everything about. I now know everything. Next time I go to school, I'm just going to be like, hey, you guys, you want to know facts about Ida B. Wells? And they're going to be Everybody's like, gonna love me. 7 a.m. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be the most popular kid in school, I armed can't. with my newfound knowledge. Thanks, Mina. History the Sheikwil is built on the backs of amazing dead women who created the opportunities you have today. Researched by Alex Everhart at Alex Icon Devil, produced by Cody Fisher, edited and engineered by Sam Kiefer, and this episode was hosted by Aaron and Mina. Thank you everyone for listening to season one. I hope we'll be back soon with a new season. We have so many women to rediscover. She was a female leader in a time we usually associate with male leadership. To me, she's, she was someone who was so consistently activist and so principled about it that she sort of, in a way, encourages us all to kind of look inside ourselves and ask whether we're doing enough. 